First, a warning. In this episode, we discuss treatment of enslaved people that includes violence, family separation, child abuse, and domestic violence. When we're talking about ethics, we often approach it from an academic angle and use rational language. We can talk about it, refer to philosophy, logic, or great thinkers, use hypotheticals. We want to be consistent. We try to come to a sound, defensible argument for what is right. Harriet Tubman did this work in the field. These moral quandaries were real decisions for her, and thus they were a lot messier than they were in a philosophy classroom. Is it ethical or even heroic to help an enslaved person escape? Absolutely. What about the risks incurred when one tries to escape? especially the risks to one's family and friends who are left behind. What if that enslaved person has second thoughts and feels pulled to return home to stay with his loved ones? What if escape means that you are abandoning your best friend, leaving her behind to live a life of slavery? What if escape entails lying, betrayal, or threatening physical violence? From a distance, we can assess actions and decide what the right thing to do is. But we do that without the intimacy, the messiness of relationships and loyalties divided. We do it with detached, rational thought, without feelings and the human heart. That's why I believe that Harriet Tubman was truly referring to a higher calling, something that transcends her earthly obligations. She is thinking and feeling at a much higher level than those of us who discuss ethics in a philosophy podcast. I'm Eric Bowman, and this is The Virtue Field. Her actions start with a very practical fear for herself and those closest to her, not with living a life of principle and virtue. In 1849, sizing up the sale of many of her family members and the debt that her enslavers were in, Harriet suspected that she might be sold as well. She had become ill in 1849, meaning her value as a slave decreased. Her enslavers, the Brodus family, couldn't hire her out and she feared that she might be sent to the Deep South. She prayed that Brodus would change his mind. With these fears, she took the first steps to freedom. When hired out to a new family that didn't know her as well, she escaped with her brothers. And she must have felt enormous pain as she did this. Her mother was devastated from the sale of other family members to the Deep South. Old Rit had already lost daughters. Harriet didn't want to tell her mother of her plan. Remember, if anyone knew of these plans, they were in danger of being conspirators, and they could be tortured by enslavers to learn more. Harriet attempted to leave a message for her mother through her friend Mary to be revealed to Old Rit long after Harriet was gone. With her enslaver within earshot, Harriet sang a spiritual loud enough for her friend Mary to hear, with the insinuation that she would pass the message on to Old Rit. I'm sorry, I'm going to leave you. Farewell, oh farewell. But I'll meet you in the morning 
farewell, oh farewell. I'll meet you in the morning. I'm bound for the promised land. On the other side of the Jordan, bound for the promised land. Notice the pain and the hope in these verses. The pain of saying goodbye, knowing that her mother would be devastated, knowing they may never see each other again, knowing that her escape might lead her enslavers to take out their wrath on those left behind. But there is hope. I will see you in the morning on the other side of the Jordan. Harriet is hiding the truth from her mother. She is perhaps putting her loved ones in danger. She is literally stealing herself from her enslavers. Is she acting unethically? Tubman biographer Kate Clifford Larson tells a story that is helpful in illuminating how traditional virtues like loyalty and honesty don't apply in the system of slavery. Thomas Dale allowed his enslaved person, William Cornish, to travel for days, sometimes weeks, to attend meetings and religious services, visit family and conduct business. The enslaved man always returned. He was given latitude because he had proven to be so trustworthy. However, over all that time, Cornish was planning his escape. When the time came, he betrayed years of trust in the ultimate long con. But can we judge Cornish as immoral? Is he dishonest? Has he betrayed? No ethical decision was straightforward for the enslaved person, and they might always end up with dirty hands. Harriet herself was pulled in different directions. It wasn't as easy as simply escaping and leaving for good. After Harriet helped her brothers escape in 1850, her brothers had second thoughts, fearing for those left behind, in particular the wife and child that they had abandoned. Within days of their escape, the brothers' fear of capture took over, and against Harriet's advice, they returned, dragging Harriet with them. But before we judge the brothers too harshly, note that the brothers are doing the same thing as Harriet. They're trying to do what is right, feeling the pull of divided moral loyalties, along with the fear for their loved ones' lives. A captured fugitive enslaved person faced the most harsh beatings, and perhaps worse, they would surely be sold deeper south. And knowing that liberating her family is a major push behind Harriet's work, I can't help but imagine how she must have been tempted to give up when her brothers returned. And yet later, she will escape. She will take that leap. And she will have the same realization later, which will start her as a liberator of others. She goes from enslaved to liberator. Shortly after returning with her brothers, she escaped again, using the Underground Railroad. She would not return to slavery, but she would return to the South. Harriet described her feelings when reaching freedom in the North. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven.
I have hopefully given you enough detail to hint at how horrific the system of chattel slavery was in the United States. People at the time knew these details. And yet this was the social order. It wasn't just the slave South that trapped Harriet and other enslaved people. America agreed that this system was okay, and Harriet and millions of other enslaved people had to exist within it. The Fugitive Slave Act, passed that year she escaped, as part of the Compromise of 1850, made the entire country complicit in the slave system. If you found an escaped slave, you were legally compelled to return him or her. You would be fined or jailed if you didn't. Slave catchers roamed the countryside, both south and north, enforcing the law and even catching freed black people and sending them south into slavery. The question of slavery was hotly debated throughout the country. As the U.S. added new territories, the question over the expansion of slavery had to be addressed. Some members of Congress, feeling the pull of their conscience through pressure from a growing abolitionist movement, argued that slavery shouldn't expand to the new territories. Others argued that slavery should be abolished altogether. But rather than deal with the injustice head-on, a series of political compromises were made to put off the question. Eventually, Congress passed a gag rule that prevented the discussion of slavery at all. But the abolitionist movement was growing more bold and gaining more followers. And the Underground Railroad grew so powerful that it started to operate in public, in plain sight, flaunting the Fugitive Slave Act and the slave system and enraging the South. Those involved in the Underground Railroad were publicly criticized, ostracized, spied on, terrorized by slave catchers. They were lawbreakers. They were undermining the social order. There was literally nowhere that was safe. But the country, that is the government, had betrayed Harriet again. Instead of dealing with the slave question once and for all, the government compromised using the lives of enslaved people as bargaining chips. Harriet didn't have the law or a justice system on her side, ensuring her rights to exist and her safety as a human being. She had to operate outside the justice system, outside common morality, because the country had failed her and enslaved people again and again. She made up to 19 trips back to the South. She freed about 70 people over the span of four to nine years, though some estimate she freed far more. By 1856, there was a $40,000 reward for her capture. It is not possible for me to recount each trip that Harriet made to help free enslaved people. It is not possible to name each of the people she helped to liberate, though each person is worthy of his or her own story. Remember that much of the country saw her as a criminal, and that she had to do a lot of dirty work as a liberator. She had to lie, deceive, obfuscate, and threaten. But she did all of these things because she would not compromise on that which was most important, human liberation.
She used various tactics to keep herself and her passengers safe. But underlying them all was a deep respect for the humans in her care. She wore disguises, blending in with others. She hid in plain sight, as if she was part of another group of enslaved people. There's an account of Harriet being spotted in New York City, leading a group of escaped enslaved people. People recognized her. Her legend grew. She carried a pistol. This was for protection. But there were also stories of her threatening to shoot those she rescued, knowing full well that if they gave up, they might be forced to turn her in or reveal the location of the Underground Railroad. She used a secret code of communication, singing songs or reciting Bible verses, speaking cryptically or hiding the truth. She would not wait for people who were late for the rendezvous. It was too dangerous. And she showed extreme care for those she sought to liberate. She left written instructions to enslaved people, instructing them how to escape, the route they should take, whom they could trust, where they could seek lodging. She cared for groups and individuals. Her young nephew James Bowley stayed in Harriet's home as his family had continued on to Canada. She wanted to assure that James received an education. She worked a job for a dollar a week in order to have enough money to support him until he moved on to be with his parents. She worked many jobs for small wages and held down many responsibilities in Philadelphia as she also plotted to liberate family members from slavery. In December of 1854, she learned that Eliza Brodus, the enslaver of her family, intended to sell her family to the Deep South by Christmas. Harriet traveled back to the Eastern Shore, determined to rescue her brothers Robert, Ben, and Henry. This journey contained many of the moral quandaries and divided loyalties that undermine our hope for a solid, logic-based, consistent list of moral laws. As Harriet returned to liberate her brothers, Robert's wife Mary had gone into labor. She was not aware of her husband's plan to escape, though it could be expected given the threat that he was being sold to the Deep South. After the birth of his new daughter, whom they named Harriet, Robert felt the love of his wife and his two sons, and his newborn daughter pulling him to stay. But he also knew that if he stayed he would surely be sold to the Deep South. He decided it would be better to escape, and he ran up to meet with his sister Harriet and the others. Hiding in a barn, waiting for the cover of darkness, Harriet and her brothers could see their own mother through the cracks of the barn wall. It was the first time that Harriet had laid eyes on her mother in years. Harriet's father, Ben Ross, knew his children were in the barn and knew of their plan to escape. He checked on them several times on this Christmas day. He brought them food to bring on their journey, and he never told his wife. As Harriet and her brothers packed up to leave, they tied a blindfold tightly over the eyes of their father, Ben. They knew that his enslavers would question the whereabouts of his children, and he could now honestly answer them that he did not know where they had gone. All of this shows how you can't just talk about moral quandaries in a vacuum and we can't establish clear moral laws for all to follow all the time. In war and in the slave system, one of the casualties is the truth. 
How disrespectful it would be to judge the actions of enslaved people if they choose to leave their family. There may be a temptation to judge the morality of some of the very difficult choices that these people made. These are the classic questions that often make up ethics conversations. Was Ben Ross guilty of betrayal when he never told his wife that their children were in the barn plotting their escape and she would never see them again? Were Harriet and her brothers disloyal, unloving to their mother when they left her, never saying goodbye? Was it ethical for Ben to leave his wife and two sons and newborn daughter? I would argue that we are in no position to ask these questions, much less come up with a philosopher's or a theologian's answer. It's the system that put these people into this predicament, forcing them to make impossible decisions that transcend judgment, goodness, or truth. It is the system set up and reinforced by people that is immoral. Would you lie to save a life? Philosopher Immanuel Kant argued in On the Supposed Right to Lie for Altruistic Reasons that we ought not to lie. Kant believes that he has ironclad reasons why lying is wrong, reasons that any rational person must agree with. When lying, could we, at the same time, wish that lying became the absolute moral law for all to follow in all circumstances? Clearly, no. We wouldn't want lying to become the norm. Thus, it is unethical. Lying destroys the fabric of a civil society where truth-telling is essential. But I say to Kant, what if the fabric of a civil society is already built on a lie? Doesn't that give advantage to those who hold power, those who enforce the law and the order of the civil society? Kant could discuss such quandaries in a theoretical sense. It was philosophy to him. But as Howard Thurman said, enslaved people were doing ethics and theology in the fields. A better thinker to look at to describe the ethics of Harriet Tubman is German pastor, theologian, and ethicist Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote in the 1930s and 40s Germany, Another time when the truth was dead and a powerful government made logical, scientific arguments for the supremacy of one race. Bonhoeffer was not hung up on moral absolutes, legalistic ethics, that could consider Harriet's lies or Ben Ross's leaving as unethical. The context matters. And a universe of lies and oppression and injustice, like the American slave system, was no place to judge individuals' actions. Bonhoeffer also warns against the moral relativist who bounces from situation to situation without any consistent dedication to the betterment of the world. They become molded and bent by each situation. Sure, there should be room for adaptation to conditions but they take it too far and show no courage. They shift with the wind. The person of duty is also misguided. 
They put duty first and are preoccupied with what they owe to others, their pledges of loyalty, their patriotism. But what if they take a pledge of loyalty to a dictator? And what if that dictator later begins a genocide? What if they have always shown loyalty to a country that enslaves others? What if they show undying loyalty to a good friend who tortures others? To Bonhoeffer, there comes a time when we must forget our promises and pledges and confront injustice. The person who fairly considers both sides of an argument is often celebrated in our liberal society. This person wants to make sure we evaluate all sides and give each equal weight. This person puts fairness over truth. We can imagine this person in a debate over slavery saying, let's make sure we give John Calhoun a chance to express his pro-slavery feelings. Let's be fair. And then this person seeks a compromise with an enslaver. And some people can't handle the tension of impassioned disagreement. This person wants order and peace. The peacemaker may want the truth to win. They may want goodness to prevail. But they are so uncomfortable with the disagreement that they will push for a resolution that brings about stability and order, even at the expense of the truth. To Bonhoeffer, and remember, he's living in Nazi Germany, ethical quandaries and philosophical puzzles mean nothing because the truly ethical action is the confronting of evil. Instead, what Bonhoeffer calls for is a Christ-like living for others, where one sacrifices oneself for the good of others and a just society. This is exactly what Harriet Tubman will do. She will sacrifice herself to save others. She will give up a relationship with her mother and father. She will leave her kin. She will live a life as a fugitive in order to save others. She sacrificed her own moral purity, lying and betraying and threatening, in order to liberate herself and others. She abandoned duties and responsibilities in order to take up a higher calling. And then she will turn her attention to dismantling an unjust system, working with improbable allies and even the U.S. government that considered her property. I think this is helpful as we think about our own actions today. We are facing some of the same threats that Harriet Tubman and even Bonhoeffer faced. An absolutist, legalist way of looking at ethical acts can be elitist. It can be white supremacist. It can be a tool used by the powerful to keep injustice alive. It can ignore the complications of life on earth in favor of life lived in theory. It can ignore a justice system, an economic system, that was set up and perpetuated by people who held all the power and kept other people in bondage. The moral laws of people who amassed wealth and power by exploiting human beings. Virtue Field is brought to you by the Revolution Ethics Project. It's written and hosted by me, Eric Bowman, and produced and scored by Echo Finch. <laughs>